You can have a seat, my friends. Whew. Willie and Sarah Jane, thank you guys so much. Here, church, let me tell you why I love Willie and Sarah Jane. Other than their incredible musical talent, they're up here singing to Jesus, and you guys may not have been able to see it, but their children are on the front row with their hands lifted to Jesus. And I'm like, those are the people I want leading our church in worship, right? Their children love Jesus, and their children are following Jesus. So, Willie and Sarah Jane, we clap for you guys. Thank you so much. You mean a lot to us. Um, I also need to say thank you to my friend Arnie, who let me wear his shirt at the last second. That means a lot to me, Arnie, so that the microphone could stick in. Thank you. Yeah, note to self, don't wear a t-shirt when you have a lapel mic, just in case any of you guys are ever in that situation. Okay. My name is Doug, and I get to be one of the pastors for our church. I love it. It's a joy getting to do this with you guys. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is kind of towards the back of the Bible. It's just a little book, little letter. Open to Philippians chapter 2. Elementary kiddos, we want to say hello. We are glad you're hanging out with us this morning. Um, You should hopefully have got a program, and on the back there's notes. Those notes are for all of us to follow along, but especially for you, elementary kiddos. That will help you guys follow along. You can fill in the blanks, all that good stuff. Um, Our church, we're in a core team season right now. And a core team season is a time for us to um, develop and discover like our family traits. What makes us who we are. It's a time for us to work out the kinks of our city groups and our volunteer teams and figure out what's going on with our building. Core team season is a time for us to prepare. So if you're here, congrats. You get to be a part of our core team season. We love you. We're thrilled that you joined us this Sunday. And we hope that you continue on with our church family as we continue. Um, So this morning, we're going to talk about how our family, our church family, works. Work, like grow up, get a job, and put in some hours at work. So let me ask you, what is the toughest job you have ever had? Not necessarily the worst, not like a bad job, but the toughest job. It took effort, it took energy. I think for me, the toughest, most strenuous job that I've ever had was working for a moving company in the heat of a Texas summer, back when I lived in Texas. If you think that I'm skinny now, you should have seen me then. Like, I thought I would bulk up lifting heavy things, but for some reason, I, I can't grow muscles on my body. I don't really know what's wrong with me. I only lost more weight. It was work. It was difficult. But I think even more difficult than that work was playing on my high school soccer team. Every year for our soccer team, we had what was called fitness weeks. It's kind of like two-a-days for football. It was two, three, four weeks when we didn't even bring a soccer ball out to the field. All we took were a bunch of orange cones, our shoes, and our poor, poor, pitiful souls that had to run until we pretty much passed out. It was work. Fitness weeks were all about work, getting our bodies in shape. We had already made the team. We had all already made the cut, but now we had to run our legs out until we couldn't really stand up. I was slow. I had asthma, and I was allergic to grass. (laughs) 
you might ask, Doug, why did you play soccer? I don't know. I didn't think that one through very well, did I? Fitness weeks were all about work. The commands would come from the coach. Everybody on the line. We'd trot over to the line. And then the next command would come, go. And we'd run as far as we're supposed to run. And then run back, catch our breath. Then the next command would come, go. And we'd have to go again. That's what fitness weeks were. A lot of commands followed by a lot of work. And guess how many times my coach got on that line and ran with us? Never. (laughs) I never saw my coach. He knew how to give commands. He knew how to make us work. But I never saw my coach do the work himself. Work is work. It requires energy and sacrifice. It requires effort. You actually have to do something, move something, make something, create something, affect something. That's work. And hallelujah, City Life, our Savior Jesus works. Amen? Amen. Let's just like get in this habit because this is how I like to preach. This is how you guys like to listen. Our Savior works. Amen? Amen. Amen. You guys can say that as often as you want to. Jesus put in the time, the energy, the effort, and He earned our salvation. We don't worship and follow a lazy Savior. We follow a hard-working Savior. That's what we looked at last week. Wayne Spriggs came in and he did an awesome job. I really enjoyed him. Did an awesome job walking us through Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and showing us how Jesus worked. He left the comforts and the air conditioning and the beaches of heaven to come down and live among us, put on skin like us, endure the heat of the Middle East, and Jesus obeyed the Father every step of the way. Jesus worked all the way to the cross. He was broken and bruised, bled out, and eventually buried. Yet Jesus never clocked out or tapped out or walked out until He got the job done. Our Savior works. If you're here this morning and you are a working man or a working woman, if you're putting in the hours trying to crank on the clock and squeeze out enough money to feed you and your family, let me tell you, Jesus is a hard-working Savior who understands what it's like. He isn't like the son or a daughter of this like huge corporation who's mega rich and he pretends like he's in charge of the company. No, Jesus is more like the worker on the assembly line who never lets up. He never slacks off. Jesus is more like the worker outside doing yards up in a boom truck, drinking enough water just to get through the day. Jesus is more like a surgeon who gets called in at 2 or 3 a.m. to do heart, um, uh, life-saving work on someone's heart. Jesus is a worker who gets the job done. That's who we follow. That was last week. Now this week doesn't start with a hallelujah, but it starts with a command. So in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, go to verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, and it says, Therefore, and of course, church, we ask, what is that therefore? Therefore. What is that therefore, therefore? And this therefore points us back to all the work that Jesus had done. So we could say, in light of Jesus' effective, complete, no complaining, body breaking, blood sweating work, in light of all that Jesus has done, let's keep going. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. There's the word, work. Work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. In view of Jesus' work, do your own work. In light of the salvation that Jesus accomplished for you, work out your own salvation. It's a serious command. It's a heavy weight. We are called to work, to effort, to actually doing something with this salvation. And Paul says it should be done with fear and trembling. I am all for encouragement, all for optimism, all for trying to not take life too seriously. But friends, this is a serious command. We can't take it lightly. As much as I want to say, this is going to be awesome, it's, it's a serious command. It should bring about fear and trembling in us. So, what does it mean? What does it mean? And this is where we get into your notes. First, work out your own salvation doesn't mean work for your salvation. Working out your salvation doesn't mean working for your salvation. That's already been accomplished by Jesus and all that He did in verses 5-11. through 11. In Paul's mind, salvation has clearly already been given to the Philippians. It is theirs. Work out your own salvation. They can't earn it. They can't buy it. They can't put in enough hours to get paid with it. Only Jesus could do that and Jesus did it. No amount of our religion, no amount of our best efforts or good works or great intentions could ever earn our salvation. Only Jesus' obedience and Jesus' work could do that. Right, church? Amen? Amen? So we know this isn't about working for our salvation, but it is still about working out our salvation. This gift that God has given to us freely in Christ Jesus, that all that Jesus did for us and all that He accomplished for us in salvation doesn't mean that we should just like get a lazy boy recliner and binge watch Netflix until Jesus comes back, right? You could say it like this. This is in your notes. The gospel is opposed to earning, but it isn't opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning, but it isn't opposed to effort. Or to say it a different way, the gospel removes our earning power, but it gives our effort power. It removes our ability to earn, but it also empowers our efforts. Right after Paul elaborated on and celebrated the complete, full, finished work of Jesus Christ, right after he had exalted Jesus to the highest of places, right after he made a big deal about Jesus, the next thing off of Paul's pen is, you've got some work to do, my friends. This is a serious command that we need to look at. So what does it mean? Next thing in your notes, work out your own salvation is a serious command Because our model is Jesus. Working out your salvation, that's a serious thing, a serious command, because our model for how to do that and what that looks like is Jesus Himself. And that's fearful because where did Jesus' work take Him? To the cross. To death. Our model of work has suffering as a centerpiece. Our model, what we look for when we think of work, has suffering as a centerpiece. I don't like that. I like to think that my obedience and my works puts God in my debt. Like, I do some good, therefore He has to do good for me. And good is however I define it, right? If I do some good now, then Jesus has to make my life easier. God has to make my life more fun. However I define good. 
I'm a Christian. That may surprise some of you, but I, I'm a Christian. But I think sometimes inside me, I still believe in karma. Karma is this belief that the good deeds you do now means you deserve a good life later. That your good works now means good is going to come back around to you. And I don't think I'm the only one who believes in karma. I think it's wildly popular in our culture, even if it's not called that. For example, last Sunday night, Chuck, you'll like this, the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship. It took them a long time to get there, but they did it, right? Afterwards, the Cavs head coach, Tyron Lue, who went to Nebraska, he said this about LeBron James. See if you can pick up the karma in this. He said, you see his basketball talent, but the reason why he deserves this is because he has a great heart. And great things happen to great people. It's a really kind sentiment but it didn't bear true for Jesus. Jesus was greater than great. He was perfect. He obeyed the Father, worked hard, loved the poor, served the needy. He did every good deed you can possibly imagine. But instead of good things or great things happening to Jesus, terrible things happened to Him. Shame, ridicule, death. Jesus' work led to suffering. Christianity is not karma. Christianity is an invitation to not only be saved by the sufferings of Jesus, but to also suffer with Jesus. And that's fearful. I mean, working out our salvation with Jesus as our model and suffering as a centerpiece, that's fearful for us. It's a serious command. Next thing, work out your salvation is a serious command because it's impossible. It's just impossible. When we look at the work of Jesus and we know that we're supposed to live out our lives, work out our salvation just like He did, we might as well acknowledge that we just can't do it. It would be similar to me requiring one of my children to get a job and work 40 hours a week and have enough skill, know-how, and work ethic to produce enough income to feed our whole family. Shiloh, my sweet five-year-old, she would try her hardest, but she wouldn't last any longer than two hours, right? No matter how much she wants to please dad and make dad happy, she just couldn't do it. She's, she was given an impossible command. And in so many ways, we are all Shiloh. Standing before a holy and righteous Father who we want to please and we want to obey Him and do everything that He expects of us, but it's just not possible. We can't do it. Another illustration. When I was in junior high, I was a nerd before being a nerd was cool. Okay? I was shy and I was skinny and I had a bowl cut. Okay? So... I feel like the bowl cuts died off with the 1990s, and that was good, okay? Like, so other hairstyles have come back, but so far the bowl cut hasn't. I think that's a good thing. So anyways, sorry. I was skinny, shy, and I had a bowl cut. But the one thing that I had going for me was that I was a left-handed pitcher in baseball. And at that age, all the kids didn't know what to do when a left-hander was throwing the ball at them. So I was like, everybody thought I was a great pitcher. So being a nerd who also played baseball, 
I read a biography of Nolan Ryan. I read a lot of books because I was a nerd. So I read a biography of Nolan Ryan, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. I learned so much about Nolan Ryan. Seven no-hitters, over 300 wins as a pitcher, right? All the different teams that he played for, how fast he could throw the ball. And I thought I could be Nolan Ryan. He was my hero. He was everything I wanted to be. And I was like, oh, I can be Nolan Ryan. That lasted for about a year more until all of a sudden, all those strikes that I were throwing was like softball pitches to the batters. And they were like hitting all of them. And I'm like, this isn't working anymore, right? And at that point in time, it didn't matter how much I knew about Nolan Ryan or how much I tried to mimic his techniques or how much I tried to be like him, I couldn't possibly measure up. I was never going to get there. Remember, I don't grow muscles. It just wasn't going to work. It was impossible. Much like this working out your own salvation thing is impossible. So now we know we have a serious command that's going to take a lot of hard work. Our model for that command of working out our salvation is Jesus himself who did it perfectly. And we know that it's pretty much impossible for us to do it. I'm back to feeling like the slow kid with asthma walking out to a grass-covered field, right? I got my inhaler in my back pocket. I'm like, might as well take it already, okay? That's how I feel. But let's keep going in our text. We've only got through one verse. I promise the others will go faster. Verse 12 ends with, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then verse 13. For it is God. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So it is a serious command, but it is empowered by a strong God. This heavy, weighty, impossible command is given to us and empowered in us by God Himself. This is like the soccer coach getting on the line, like coming inside of me and running through me in those fitness weeks. Not just running for me, but like somehow coming inside of me and making my body do stuff and making me run fast and not have asthma. This is Nolan Ryan actually coming inside of me, getting in my body, transforming me and making me suddenly able to throw 100 miles per hour fastballs. That is what this is. The impossible has become possible. And I know that sounds ludicrous, right? Like your soccer coach in you, Nolan Ryan in you. But friends, this is the craziness of Christianity. It isn't merely a baseball player or my soccer coach in me, but it is God Himself in me. God calls us to do the impossible. Work out your own salvation. And then God Himself does the impossible for us on our behalf through Jesus Christ, who perfectly worked out His salvation. And when we put our trust and faith in Him, He's doing it for us. But not only that, God Himself also does the impossible in us through the Holy Spirit. God in you, giving you the power to both will and to work for His good pleasure. City Light. Do you see that the entire Christian life, from start to finish, it is required by God, birthed by God, sustained by God, and will be finished by God. How wonderful that in light of these commands that we're given, God gives us Himself to carry all of those out, His power in us making it happen. Many of us, um, for years, we've been familiar with what God requires of us. 
Stop drinking this. Stop dipping that. Give this amount of money. Start volunteering for this ministry. Love your wife. You know, like submit to your husband. Be more patient with your kids. Work harder. Pray more. Do better. We know what God expects of us. And we think that all those expectations, all those commands, they get organized and assimilated and added up to something that we call the Bible. The truth is that God has exceedingly impossible expectations for us. His commands do not slack. They do not waver. He does not give, he does not grade on the curve. He has exceeding expectations for us, but he has sent his son Jesus to fulfill all of those expectations on our behalf, in our place, and He has sent us the Holy Spirit so that He can carry out all those expectations and all of those commands in us and through us. So like, listen, God in you, God Almighty, the ruler of heaven and earth, the supreme King in you. Clean, perfect, pure, glorious God in me. It's crazy. It's scary. It almost makes you want to tremble God in you. God working in us, changing our desires. He's giving breath to our lungs and animating our movements, empowering our obedience. And Paul says that all of this builds toward and works towards God's good pleasure. This serious command empowered by a strong God is for the pleasure of God. I really want you to hear this. City Light... God wants to work in you. God wants to work in you. He enjoys empowering you. God delights when you depend on Him. God celebrates when you submit to Him. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Christian, this morning, let me remind you that God has done everything for you in and through Jesus Christ. And God can do everything in you through the Holy Spirit. And that news, that truth, is meant to enliven us and empower us to get to work for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Okay. So, there's the big concept. There's the truth that really it's behind everything a Christian does. All that we're called to do. All who we are called to be. That's the truth behind it. It's a serious command empowered by a strong God. Then in verse 14, Paul drops down to rubber meets the road level, and he gives us a very practical example of how this plays out. So let's look at it. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And right away, I look at that and I say, fail, can't do it, right? I can't get through a night. Like, I can't get through a night of sleep without grumbling, okay? If one of our small children wakes me up to use the restroom in the middle of the night, I am able to grumble in all sorts of grunts and languages and four-letter words that should not be spoken from the stage. I have even developed the ability, here's how it goes. If, if I get off work and I go home and the laundry isn't done, or there's like a mess on the kitchen table, or my 34 weeks pregnant with twins wife actually needs my help for something, I have developed the ability to grumble without saying a word, 
right? The steam coming out of my ears lets everybody know that I'm grumbling. But I haven't even spoken a word. But if you were to speak to me, all of a sudden my grumbling turns into disputing, right? I am skilled at grumbling and I am talented at disputing. And I would guess that many of you in this room would also say when you look at this command, fail, can't do it, right? It's a practical street level serious command that feels impossible. Paul continues in verse 15. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, that so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay, now, before I go any further, let me connect the dots here. Paul knows that the Philippian church wants to be a light. They want to be blameless, innocent children of God. And one of the ways that they can do this is by removing grumbling and complaining and disputing from their midst. Grumbling and disputing are like roadblocks, snares, traps that can hold the Philippian church back from being a bright light in a dark city. The name of our church is City Light. We want to be a bright light in a dark city. But often, here's what I do. Maybe you do it too. Often we jump from that desire to be a bright light in a dark city. We jump from that desire to some big action or big event or big change. Right? We're going to set this city on fire for Jesus by getting rid of poverty this week. We're going to like change the world and I'm going to share the gospel with everybody. Every single uh, break at work, I'm going to share the gospel with whoever's sitting next to me, whether they have headphones in or not. Right? Let's, let's have a citywide rally. Let's plant five churches in the next five years. And Paul would say, I hear that desire. I applaud that desire to be a bright light in your dark city. But if you want to shine bright, just stop complaining. If you want to shine bright and bring the light of Jesus Christ to your city, just stop arguing with each other. If you want to be innocent children of God, then lose the grumbling and the disputing. If you want to set this city on fire for Jesus, stop grumbling and stop arguing. It's the little things that make a big difference. Right, church? Those little things. In my mind, I'm going, really, Paul, did you just connect my lack of complaining to City Light Council Bluffs seeing the light of Jesus Christ? And he's like, yeah, I did. I did just do that. Speaking of not complaining, let me just pause and give some praise here. Because I, I really believe, church, that you guys excel in this. You guys do great in this area. You are a life-giving, encouraging people to be around. Andy and Ashley Himes. It, it only makes sense. They're volunteering right now. They're here. He's doing security and she's doing city like Yeah, kids. Okay. So Andy and Ashley Himes. Okay. They, they host our city group every single week. They help lead our city group every single week. Andy leads the security team, gathered a bunch of volunteers, put together these maps that will help us keep safe in event of a tornado or fire. Ashley helps lead city like kids, organize, assimilate, do all that sort of stuff. And they do it all without complaining, without grumbling. They excel in this area. 
um, Autumn Ryan. Every single week, she makes sure that all of your donations, our donations, are handled above reproach with great care and great concern, very diligently handled above reproach in such a way that it brings Jesus glory. And she does it without complaining. Cheryl Harriman, she runs errands for us all week long. Walmart, Sam's, whatever we need, toilet paper, screwdrivers. Eric and I can come up with some random stuff that you need when you're playing a church. And she does it all with joy and gladness. I love being a part of a core team, a church family that doesn't complain, that doesn't grumble, that doesn't dispute. City Light, you guys are doing awesome. Thank you, friends. And thank you, Jesus, for letting us do this together. I am so encouraged in this area. Yet at the same time, let's be alert, church. We have the same heart as the Philippian church. We want to be a bright light in our dark city. We want to be blameless, innocent children of God. And what might throw us off track, what might get us off course, it might not be some flagrant fouls or outrageous behaviors. It might be a slowly built pattern of grumbling. It might be a little minor dispute that escalates into a major argument. Sooner or later, if it hasn't happened already, our church and our church leaders will give you good reason to grumble or dispute. It will happen. The coffee doesn't taste right, or the music is too loud, or Doug does something you don't like, or Eric makes a decision that rubs you the wrong way. That one person in city group who always talks too much, right? You, you will have reason to grumble or dispute. And when those opportunities arise, church, let us remember that God hasn't only commanded us to not grumble and not dispute, but He has also taken up residence within us to empower us to not grumble and not dispute. We are not alone in our fight to remove complaining and grumbling from our vocabulary. We are filled with, supported by, and empowered by the very Spirit of God, our strong. God. Yes, He has given us a serious command, but He is a strong God empowering that command in us. City Light, let me close this way. All the big things, like working out our salvation, and all the little things, like not complaining, will take work. We will break a sweat. We will exert effort. We will feel the burn. We might even, like me, need an inhaler. But in all of our imperfections, let us look to Jesus, who did it all perfectly. And in all of our efforts, let us look to the Holy Spirit, who will do it beautifully in us. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Pray with me. And if you're serving communion, you can go ahead and prepare. But church, I don't, I don't want to get in a rush here. I don't want to hurry. So bow your heads and pray. And let me just invite the Holy Spirit to work. Holy Spirit of God, in light of your scriptures and the word that you just breathed upon us, would you come now and work it down into our hearts? It's so easy to, to hear a sermon or hear a message and be like, okay, I got a little thing from that. And Then we go about our days. But Holy Spirit, I'm asking you, would you come in the next few minutes and work something down deep in our hearts for us? 
Oh God, You know who's in this room, what we're all going through, what we all struggle with, where we feel like we just can't measure up. You know all those things. And I pray that You would come speak to us personally. Let us hear Your voice. And so church, this is what I want you to do. While you're praying, while we're staying quiet, I want you to think of one struggle one area where you know God expects something of you, right? You you may know the Bible verse that tells you to do such and such. Or you know there's a change that needs to happen in your heart or in your life. I want you to think of that. And you know it's a struggle. You've been working at it. Nothing's happening. It's taking too long. Whatever it might be. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to bring these things to mind for your people. And then church, I want you to do this while you're praying. I want you to open the eyes of your heart and see Jesus taking that struggle upon Himself and executing everything that needs to happen, the change that needs to happen, the obedience that needs to happen. See Jesus doing all of that. He did it perfectly. It didn't take Him too long. He didn't falter. He didn't fail. He didn't rebel. He didn't turn against the Father. See Jesus doing all of that perfectly. And then understand that is for you. What Jesus did perfectly substitutes for your imperfections. Your imperfections go to Jesus and all of His perfections now come to you. Accept that righteousness from Jesus. It may be a struggle from last night. It may be a struggle from your childhood. Accept that righteousness. Accept that grace from Jesus for you in your place. And then I want you to also consider in your heart that not only did Jesus do that for you, but you're still doomed to keep repeating that cycle even though it's been paid for. But realize that the Holy Spirit can do it in you. All that Jesus did for you, the Holy Spirit can do in you. And I want you in your heart, through prayer, to invite the Holy Spirit. Say to Him, Holy Spirit, change that in me. You may need to tell Him that you've been depending on yourself. You've been trying to do it in your own strength, your own power. And I want you to invite the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you make this change by your power? Would you work in my desires, work in my efforts to bring about this change, to set me free from this struggle? So church, as a way of doing that exercise very tangibly, we're going to take communion. So communion is a way where we look back at what Jesus did for us, His body, His blood. But it's also a way of us realizing we're putting that in ourselves. We're not just looking at it, we're eating it, digesting it, taking it in. So as you take communion this morning, bring your struggles to Him. Bring your sins to Him. Bring your fears to Him and say, Jesus, thank you for all that you did for me. And Holy Spirit, thank you for all that you're doing in me. Oh, Father God, we pray, would you make communion beautiful this morning? May it not just be one more time to walk down that aisle and take a bread and dip it in juice, but may it be a reminder, something happening in our hearts where we see Jesus as our substitute and we see the Holy Spirit as our living empowerer inside of us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.